players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Wishclaw Talisman, Massacre, Carpet of Flowers, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanra on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 39 of the Eternal Glory podcast, This Year in Legacy. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined as always by one Stormy Boy and one Urza Boy, Bryant Cook and Brian Koval. How are you all doing tonight? <laughs> Wait, who's who? <laughs> um, I'm going to let the viewers guess. It can be a little game. All right. Thanks, Thalia Boy. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh... About the same here. All right. Glad glad to hear it. How so, are you doing, Philip? I'm I'm doing pretty well. Um content creation has been going really well, but I'm uh, going to be taking off the tail end of this week. Uh my girlfriend and I rented a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, so we're just uh getting a venue change in a nice COVID-friendly way. Really really looking forward to hanging out in a hot tub for an unhealthy amount of time and pruny fingers. It's going to be good. Oh god, I I am not built for hot tubs. Uh, like, I for for those of you who haven't met me in person, I I am basically transparent. My my Irish blood runs runs deep. I'm built for like cool wet weather, and a hot tub or the sun just murder me. Uh, like my my parents have a hot tub, and every girlfriend I've ever had like just wanted to sit in it forever, and I'm just like I want to die. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I have about seven minutes in a hot tub. Uh, the the jets usually like if you don't know this people life hack the the bubbles on hot tubs are set to shut off after i think it's like 15 or 20 minutes and when they do that you're supposed to get out for a little while because it's not healthy to be in there the human body's not meant to exist at that temperature for that amount of time so don't just hit the bubble button again at least get out cool off a little bit then come back in please when we bought our house, it came with a hot tub because honestly, like we just wouldn't buy one. Otherwise, they're kind of expensive. And after about half an hour of being in a hot tub, I have difficult breathing. Like just I can't do it. I have to get out. So, yeah, that's well past the safe amount of time. Are you restarting the bubbles? No, like just like, they, relaxing. Oh, yours, yours doesn't have the safe that safety feature. It does, but it's 45 minutes for ours. Oh, my God. They want you to die. That sounds like it was made in the 70s. Uh, it's about 10 years old. <laughs> so the last time yeah. I had access to a hot tub, I may or may not have just binged anime while sitting in the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're like one of those monkeys who lives in the mountains and just lays in the hot spring to stay alive. When you said you were going up to a cabin, I couldn't help but think of like cabin fever with you stopping at a gas station, just screaming like, I want pancakes. I also have a a cabin related thing coming up. One of my friends, her birthday is early February, and she planned this cabin getaway for uh, this small group of friends, all of us 
have been in quarantine for over a month now because we all work together and nobody's outside the bubble. It's probably like six of us who are going to go. And then she texted us like this week that was like, uh, with all the uncertainty, I think we should cancel the trip. And it was like, there's no less certainty than there was when we booked the trip in the first place. Like nothing has changed. But I mean, you do you. It's probably smarter just not to even do it. But I was looking forward to it and it's it's not going to happen now. What if they secretly expose themselves and they're like, oh, I want to bail out now so that way I don't risk everyone else and they're truly a hero? Then good for them. I hope that uh, the deposit is refundable because <laughs> I will freak the fuck out if it's not. <laughs> I'll just go by myself. So I I recently was really missing one of my, my good friends from Roanoke and we we sat down I think it was two nights ago now, and we just like played a Slay the Spire run together while drinking scotch over the internet. And that was just like such a fantastic bonding experience to just like do some gaming with a friend who like I've been playing Magic and Smash Bros with for years and years and years. And that was that was just awesome. Gave me a a taste of some of the things that I've been missing. Yeah, uh, the other day, uh, my girlfriend, she she was like, we should host Jackbox games jackbox games for new year's and i was like oh yeah that's not the worst idea and then like the next morning completely unprompted one of my friends texted me and was like hey tina and i tina is an is a third party here uh not my girlfriend uh was like tina and i were talking about how you should host jackbox games this week and i was like wow we were just talking about that it sounds like everyone is missing the hangouts like in the early days like Back in the spring and early summer, I hosted Jackbox like once a week for all my friends. And that just sort of fell off. But it sounds like I'm hosting a New Year's party via the Jackbox. I think we're Not doing a better Among idea. Us. I might steal that from you, Brian. Do it. Yeah. So other than that, about the only other thing I've been doing is I binged Alice in Borderlands on Netflix. Same. That show is very good. It's sort of a battle royale style show with a little bit more like anime and manga vibes, but it is live action. It's only eight episodes and like, God, I hope there is more. Yeah, I hope so, too. Like, I, I, it started off kind of saw and then merged into battle royale and then just became this like post-apocalyptic dystopian society. And that's like three genres I love. So uh, I, I was on board for the whole thing. All right, Brian, what have you been doing? Well, uh, holidays went pretty well, you know, all that good stuff. But one of the things I was secretly excited for was a new pop filter. The one that I had was basically transparent and I didn't think it was actually doing anything. This new one is really thick and awesome. And it's actually like made of like wire and not just like stockings or whatever. So pretty big fan of that if you're interested i linked it in the faq on the epicsworm.com uh highly recommend compared to what i had like this thing's a huge upgrade um but also like 1984 dropped on christmas day uh for those of you unfamiliar it's the new wonder woman movie and the internet just decided that it was really cool to shit on this movie it was fine like it's a superhero movie like what are you expecting and the next night we were like oh we should see if there's anything else new on hbo max well, Birds of Prey is now up. Now, that is a bad movie. Uh, as someone who what? like read a lot of Batman comics growing up, I couldn't get over Danny Castellano from Mindy Project being Victor's ass. Like, that was just so bad. Uh, 
I, I, I am going to, I, I'm, I'm struggling to stay in the room right now and not cancel this podcast. Oh no, mommy and daddy are about to fight folks. Birds of Prey is like a masterpiece and 1984 sucks. <laughs> and like, oh my God, <laughs> I, I don't know how we can rectify this in our intro section without, and, and still talk about legacy today. <laughs> but yeah, like 84 was like, like you said, it, it, it was, it was fine, but it's the bottom end of fine. Like, it's much worse than the first Wonder Woman. It's much worse than Aquaman. And all of those are much worse than most of the MCU. Like the the MCU has this formula where like all of the movies are at least entertaining, if not like full of social value or whatever. Uh, but 1984 was kind of a mess. And then but Birds of Prey was just like it was great. It, it was like everything you wanted Suicide Squad to be, but wasn't Suicide Squad is is a bad movie. I just didn't like Birds of Prey. There were so many things wrong with it, in my opinion. But uh, with 1984, I think most of the Pedro Pascal stuff just, like, wasn't very good. And if they had focused more on, um, what's her name from SNL? Uh, uh, Cheetah? Yes, uh, Kristen Wake. Like, it would have been better. But I don't want to go uh, too much into the movie stuff. Yeah, no spoilers. I am off of work this week, so I've been making a lot of uh, magic, magic content. So unlike Phil, I'm gearing up for the end of the year and uh, very exciting this week. I was projected to lose the fantasy football finals by 15 points. Uh, The Chiefs and uh, Patrick Mahomes carry me to a victory. Eat that Patrick Uglo, who said that Patrick Mahomes is overrated at the start of the season. How did you finish? Huh? How did you finish, Pat? Wow. Podcast wars. All right. Uh, <laughs> anything else going on with you or is that your, your sign off? That's my sign off. <clears throat> well, uh, my, we, we did the, the holiday thing too. It went well. Uh, we hosted Christmas for my parents. Uh, my parents are basically the only people we've seen, uh, for the past 10 months in person and they came over. Uh, my brother lives in New Jersey and was unable to navigate the quarantine rules like two weeks out, two weeks in and still show up to work when he needed to. Like he couldn't take a month off work to come to Christmas. So uh, he did not show up in person, uh, though uh, my girlfriend's parents did come over on Christmas Day and met my parents for the first time. Uh, yesterday was our three year anniversary and our parents finally met and it went OK. <laughs> so uh important steps uh i got a disc golf net for christmas like the the thing you shoot at when you play disc golf so now i can just set that shit up anywhere and just be a disc golf boy and i'm excited about that uh just standing in my yard practicing my putts just for hours at a time i'm looking forward for when the ground is not covered in snow i can start doing that i have a question and sorry if i sound dumb but i just don't know that much about disc golf so did you get a physical net to like put on a park uh so like there's parks around here that have like the poles in the ground is it like a net to put on the pole or are you getting no, like it, the... it is the pole okay yeah, like the, the entire apparatus it, it's like a i haven't set it up yet but it's claimed to be portable i assume it's on some sort of tripod but it's the entire like the pole the basket the chains uh, everything that i can just set up where i want nice so yeah it's gonna be really nice um and other than that like the biggest time sink for me outside of magic is the great british baking show and 
I watched one season of that about a year and a half ago because all my friends were talking about it and I wanted to see what the hype was. And it was fine. And I was like, okay, I'm now aware of what this is and I don't need to watch anymore because Netflix has like 10 seasons or, so- or something of it. But uh, my my girlfriend and I got into watching it at night. Like we just you know, sit on the couch together and watch two or three episodes of that. And we've now gone back, I think, five seasons. We just started at the most recent one and we're just working our way backwards in time. And that that it that show is just delightful. Though I experienced a crazy time warp because we're watching it backwards. I'm also watching Taskmaster, which is a, a British game show where they like they have to do silly tasks at, and then they get scored by the Taskmaster based on how they complete the task. And, and the entire show, like 10 seasons of it is on YouTube if you want to check it out. But it, it's really funny. And the tasks range from like uh, you have one hour to film a funny video to make this Swedish person blush. And like, uh, they're just outrageous. But uh, the, there was an, a season, season four of Taskmaster had uh, Mel Gedroich and Noel Fielding on it. And Mel is the old host of Great British Bake Off. And Noel is the new host of Great British Bake Off. But at the time they filmed that season, Mel was the current host and Noel was not even affiliated with the show yet. So there were many jokes during the season about hosting a Bake Off. And I didn't realize for like three episodes that they were talking to Mel and not to Noel because I'm watching them in like temporal reversology. I get I it. Know. Yeah. That's all I have. So uh, uh, my life is not exciting right now. I've never actually sat down and watched Great British Bake Off or whatever it's called, Baking Show, uh, but I've caught it in my house, like grabbing a drink in the kitchen or whatever. And. Wait, I was, the show was in your house grabbing a drink? Yes. That's what <laughs> I, I meant to say. I just picture, like, Noel Fielding, like, how's it going, mate? As he, like, <laughs> drinks you out of your fridge. I well, would not be mad about that, by the way. Well, when I'm grabbing a drink, I see it in the living room or whatever. And I was kind of thrown off guard to see that the guy from Community that tries to break up Troy and Abad during the Inspector Space Time, uh, like, convention is the host of Great British Baking Show. I was like, that guy's a fucking traitor. I don't want him in this house. <laughs> He's also old Greg from the old Mighty Boosh sketch. Like, you ever drink Baileys from a shoe? That's him. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, he he is sort of a British national treasure and, and also just like weirdo. But but it, it he's, he's a great host for the show. All right. Um, moving on to sort of our next section here. Uh, thank you very much to Evan Graveno for donating to support the podcast and everything we do. You know, your donations keep our editor, Phil Blackman at Force of Phil paid and happy. As far as feedback goes, Sanzia from Reddit says, As someone who played High Tide exclusively from 2010 to 2012, I about died of laughing at the passive-aggressive turn-passing intro. That was a great intro. Uh, we, we don't know what people are going to say necessarily, like when we send out our intro. Like, obviously, we have like the, the format, but how they fill it in is up to them. And uh, that was one of the, the more delightful ones when it came back to us. So it's worth noting, this is episode 39. I, episode 50, I'd like to do some sort of giveaway if for like whoever can get the most correct guesses on like who the intro guest was. So like... 
I don't know what we'll give away, but I think it would be pretty cool if we like came up with something. So if you're a listener, maybe you should go back and like record who you think the intros were and see how many you can get correct. That, that's a fun side project. I, I am down for this. Yeah, that, that's a hefty. Maybe we should uh, like crop all of the intros into one like sound bit for them. Or unless we we're trying to farm hits on all episodes <laughs> via SoundCloud, <laughs> I'll I'll leave Brian in charge of that project. Like on the feedback side, though, uh, I we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but uh, we, I can't keep track of all of these to mention to the show. But probably every Magic Online league I play, at least one of my opponents is like, "Hey, I love your podcast," or "I love your channel." So like all of those little uh, boosts keep it going because like. We, we don't really make any money doing this. It is, this is just for the community. So knowing that the community actually listens and cares and likes it is, is worth everything. All right. Um, so like on that note, let's talk about MTG updates. Um, all of us are kind of continuing a push of like really working on self-improvement and making our content better. Um, I know on my end from November to December, I saw something like 150% of my usual stats or something like that. So the changes with like the thumbnails and the audio quality and like the new camera setup are, are just like so, so appreciated by everyone. Yeah, it's definitely looking good. And I know that personally, I like heard someone say that they're going to start watching you more often due to the new like setup that you have. So like you're gaining viewers, which is always a plus. Oh, yeah. Um. I don't want to like go off on like a crazy content creator like streak here or anything because we kind of did that not too long ago. But it's it's really easy to like st- stagnate and get stuck in a spot for a long time in content creation where you don't really grow. And like I, I am beyond breaking out of that. Like Brian and I are both like smashing where we were a month ago. And I know, Brian, you're you're starting to see the dividends of your changes as well. Definitely. Um, I have some awesome content either that's already out. Well, both will already be out for the listeners, I suppose. Um, I had a really cool Dead Guy Ale League with Opposition Agent that is is performing really well and people really enjoy. And then I recorded a 5-0 League with Yorian Pod, of all things. And it was just like absolutely crazy. I kept saying like, yeah, I think I'm just going to concede. I can't possibly win. And then I just like drew Birthing Pod and I'm like, Hold on a second. Do I just win on the spot? I do. Karmic Guide gets me out of this weird situation. Um, it was very strange. I didn't expect it to be so good. Birthing Pot is like one of those weird cards where it was too broken for modern, at least at the time, but not quite good enough for Legacy. And I played it a lot in Standard. It's a super fun card. But it's in the awkward in-between spot, like where it might have been perfect for extended or something. But its power level is just like in that awkward in-between space. So like it's kind of cool to see you make this content. Yeah, I had to read some of the cards in my deck, <laughs> which I don't usually have to do. So that's that's when you know you have a winner. So I was I saw a screenshot of yours on Twitter, and it was the two mana one four that untaps an artifact or a creature, I believe. Yeah. And I was thinking about it when you posted that. I'm like, oh, cool, fill one infinite or whatever. But the more interesting aspect to me was I was like, I think that there's a creature that wins with Kiki Jiki on every level of the curve now that isn't one. Yeah, that's what's real hot about it. Is like 
you have these weird pod chains now where it's like, it doesn't look like I can win. Oh, wait, I just pod this mana dork into half of my combo and I go off. And like, they're not even safe if they get rid of the Kiki Jiki. Like, my Kiki Jiki got countered or killed, and then I just tried again next turn. I potted a, fel what is it, Felidar Guardian into Karmic Guide, returned Kiki Jiki, then Kiki Jiki the Karmic Guide to return another combo piece from my graveyard and go off. That's nasty. Yeah, that's great magic. People love that stuff, myself included. Well, uh, speaking of yourself included, what have you been doing magic wise? Uh, well, like Phil said, uh, my, my YouTube's kind of been going off. Um, last time we met, I had two videos that had broken 5,000 views. Uh, now I have uh, five that are over 5,000 views, and two of them are over 10,000. Uh, like the the Hull Breacher, Mono Blue Hull Breacher Callum's list uh, that I was really excited about crept over the 10,000 view mark after being live for a month. And then I released Teferi Vacation. And it had 10k views in two and a half days. Like, people went, loved that. Like, I don't know. There must have been some sort of sweet spot of, like, commander interest and legacy interest. And uh, that that one, it's approaching 14,000 now, and it's been live less than a week. And then I have a bunch of others hanging around in the 4,500 range that, you know, given a couple more weeks, will probably be over 5k as well. So that's performing well. Um, I'm trying to figure out like I'm diversifying my offerings and trying to figure out what people really like. Uh, like the, the classic like legacy high strategy videos that I post still usually get like around 3000 views, but then like randomly one will get like seven. And then I'll post uh, like a, like some, some like goofy league and it'll get like 1000 views and another goofy league that feels exactly the same. will get, 13,000 and I'm like what is happening what what is getting tapped into here on these various things so I'm trying to figure out that um so uh I I have like the donation deck list running like a lot of people want me to play their decks in all sorts of formats I started the deep analysis webcast uh which started basically by accident but I'm gonna run with it um the the first episode uh we talked about ad nauseum tendrils and the epic storm and where they are in present legacy and how they got there. Uh, I had uh, Alex McKinley and Daniel D'Amato representing the two decks. And I think that went really well. Uh, it went so well that I actually uh, commissioned a graphic artist to make a real overlay for the thing. Like I want that to look good. I want that to be like my most polished, like flagship product eventually. Um, I, I've done some collaborations. I had both of you on the channel recently uh, in different leagues obviously we didn't we haven't fused the epic storm with death and taxes yet but maybe that'll be the the twenty thousand view video failures epic storm already exists oh right 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 yeah uh during the entire uh uh recording of deep analysis daniel d'amato's name was thalia chat <laughs> i was like <laughs> this is someone's joke that uh, uh i was not in on but <laughs> yep so uh did that and I just recorded a Commander League, which was a donation deck list. Uh, I did not decide on my own to be a Commander channel, but we're going to see how that goes. Uh, I got uh, Matt Sperling, Zach Allen, and Eric Virgo to play against me, and the the banter was great. Uh, our decks were all mostly the same power level, which is pretty important in a Commander League. I think Zach might have uh, 
cranked it up just a little higher than the rest of us, but uh, not not so bad that it ruined the game. And Sperling played Sphinx Tribal, and he was uh, making us solve riddles to decide who he was going to attack, like he was an actual Sphinx. So, like, this video is going to be a lot of fun for anyone who watches it. Um, so uh, I'm I'm actually running out of days of the week to fill, to, like, put all the content. Like, I, I thought, like, releasing a video a day would be, like, hard. But now it's like, do I need to release two videos a day? Do I need to schedule, like, three weeks in advance, like, donation decks? Normally it was like, yeah, I'll record it and it'll be up later in the week. Now I'm, like, a week and a half out. I feel like pretty soon it's going to be like uh, your deck's going to rotate before I can play it. And uh, so I got to figure out how to manage that. Are you doing weekends or just weekdays? Weekdays. Uh, I, I recorded with that uh, Busto Cube, like the Supreme Draft Vintage Cube. Uh, that that whole like recording, editing process took me like an hour and a half. And I just like dropped it on a random Saturday and it got uh, almost 5,000 views. So like Clearly, that's not a problem, but I, I don't want to set myself up for burnout, but I also don't want to lock out potential content opportunities. So it's I'm at like some sort of crucial point where I'm going to have to figure out how to manage this. Um, and then I've also gotten some feedback from some of my my more long term fans that are like, I used to watch your videos like start to finish every single one. The legacy, the high level play was just worth it but I don't like watching you flounder with random half-baked donation decks. And it's like, yeah, some of the decks I've been submitted aren't fully fleshed out. That's why they submitted them. Like, uh, I don't know. So I, I got to figure out, I got to make sure that I have like real legacy, like meta decks, at least a couple days a week. I can't just be all memes and donations. So navigating that is where I'm at right now. And uh, I believe that you announced today, Brian, you have a new sponsorship. Uh, yeah, I, I joined the Card Hoarder Network alongside Phil, who was already in there, and uh, uh, Julian from uh, Everyday Eternal, also a member. So uh, it's pretty sweet that uh, I just don't have to worry about cards anymore. Like every time a new set came out, I like half of me, like when a spoiler would drop, like every time a spoiler dropped, I'm like, oh, man, this whole Breacher card is sweet. But then the back of the head, my head, it's like four hundred dollars, <laughs> guaranteed. This is going to be a limited release, <laughs> and even the the non limited releases, even the actual sets like Aro and Oko and Teferi Time Raveler, Force of Negation, Ren and Six. Like there's hundred dollar bills just floating around this format that are all playable. So getting a loan account so I don't have to upfront five hundred bucks just to stay relevant every time a set drops is nice. So it's not even always new cards either. Uh, I was I recorded a vintage video uh, the other day, and I was like, oh, I need two Tabernacle. I sold two Tabernacles maybe three months ago when I decided that I didn't want to play them anymore in PO. I sold them for like 18 tickets. They're now 45. Like, those just like went up in three months. Carpet of Flowers is 40 tickets again. Uh, I don't know. Like, the moto economy is just like spiking. Yeah, I, I'm now at the point, now that I have this, uh, like, loaner sponsorship, I'm going to have to comb through my collection and, like, sell off that those sort of shit that I don't really need to own every day. Like, I'm probably going to keep my Hull Breachers and my Uros and, like, things that are just in most decks. But uh, 
things like Carpet of Flowers and Opposition Agent. I just have a bunch of like thirty to fifty dollar bills sitting in my collection that I don't need to own full time anymore. Yeah. Uh, regarding my MTG updates, I this week I mentioned I am taking work off. One of my goals this week is to do a YouTube logo animation for the beginning of all my videos. Yesterday, I designed the storyboard. It looks fucking awesome. Super excited. The tougher part's going to be animating everything how I want, and I'm super nitpicky, so like if it's not perfect, I'm just not going to upload it. So I'm not sure if I'll get it done this week, but maybe in a week or two it will be live, hopefully. I'd knock on wood, but I don't want to, you know, ruin the recording or something like that. Uh, like the other two guys, I've just been like making tons of content. So I uploaded a stream from Cardboard Live. I streamed on their service for the first time. That's on the YouTube channel. A legacy Toppy, Legacy Challenge, Modern Video, Vintage Video. Uh, today, Alex McKinley's uh, Mox Qualifier just went up. It's doing super well. Uh, congrats to him, by the way. I know that he was in Brian's video, uh, the deep analysis. So Alex has just been on a tear recently. So congrats to him once again. And uh, in the last episode, I talked about the deck showcases going up on December 22nd. Well, they're up. Uh, I had a few people message me on Twitch saying, like, hey, have these gone up yet? If you're interested in looking at shiny cards, theepicstorm.com. Now officially a porn site. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Are we ready to hop into the meat of things then? Let's do it. Only 30 minutes this week. Uh, where will people complain? I, I, I thought that was our, our allotted time. We About 30 minutes of bullshit at the beginning and then about an hour and a half of actual content yeah uh, I, I feel like it's closer to 50 50 most weeks but <laughs> there's still time for a few tangents oh uh, i i have a feeling this is going to be a tangent rich week um so what we wanted to do this week was kind of reflect on the year and kind of think about like a what has happened in this year and b what do we think of like card design in the previous year? What has happened to Legacy as a result of this year? Or maybe where are we moving forward? This is kind of the stuff that we, we want to think about. So we're going to start. And we decided to break down this year's Legacy into kind of like five different periods. Um, they're not necessarily broken down by like time span or set release exactly. But that it, 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 both kind of roughly correlate. And the first is sort of like where we started 2020 in, and that was the era of snow, and winter was coming. Fuck, winter, winter was here. There were there were a lot of astrolabes floating around. Winter's Most still here. Most years do start in the winter. <laughs> but it was At the veil of summer that it got everyone talking. Yeah. So kind of kind of going back. Uh, it's going to sound a lot like now again. Uh, we kind of came full circle. But the year started with a lot of Oko dominance. Uh, Snow was putting up really good results. It was very popular. It was kind of the, the de facto uh, control deck of choice. And our, our year started with banned discussions around Snow. So... Like, that was the starting point of this year. It seems so, so long ago now. Um, and not a lot has changed. On, well, a lot changed in the middle, but we're we're kind of back there again. Yeah, this is the old ban everything until Necropotence is good, and then ban Necropotence conversation. Like, we started the year complaining about snow, and then Underworld Breach, Companions, other shit happened, 
now we're complaining about snow again. Uh, but we're, we're going to hit all those one at a time. But like, yeah, uh, time is a flat circle. So tw- when 2020 started, the Epic Storm had just revitalized itself. And a lot of the people in the Epic Storm Facebook chat were just putting up crazy results on Magic Online. And we had a lot of Ant players asking to join the group and stuff like that. And there's just a lot of people working on TES. And this was during that initial snow era. So, like, TES was, like, the third deck on Goldfish. Like, it was awesome. And it was great because we crushed snow. And I was like, no, don't ban anything. Everything's perfect right now. Like, don't touch anything. Leave it alone. Uh, And, like... I missed that period, or I still miss that period. Uh, and this is when, like, a lot of the Banvale summer s- talks started. They're like, well, if TES is doing well, something's wrong. <laughs> this period sucked for me because that snow deck was really good against taxes and really good against Red Prison and really good against BS donation deck lists. Uh, I don't think that's wrong. changed. brand. <laughs> Like, Phil, all of that still seems true. Um, DNT has a little bit more game versus snow now. Now now we don't just, like, roll over and die to the Oko. We we get to, like, put up a fight now. Uh, Let's save that a little bit, though. Yeah. Uh, Brian, it's funny you just said, like, no, don't ban anything. The Epic Storm is well positioned. Like, we actually talked about in uh, that episode of Deep Analysis with the Storm guys that the Ren and Six banning was the worst banning for Ad Nauseum in Legacy. <laughs> worse than Gataxian Probe, worse than Mystical Tutor. Like, it was Ren and Six getting banned that really hurt Ad Nauseum Tentrils. Yeah. It's very true. So, the the year started with a lot of Legacy players kind of on a low note, for very different reasons. Um, Veil of Summer was, like, really crushing some people. Um... The ant players weren't having a great time with it. The a lot of the more casual players who played discard focused decks were just like, yeah, it hits my discard and it hits my abrupt decays. Like I, I, I just don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Um, and then we got like the snow globe just like shaken up and thrown against the wall when Underworld Breach came out a little bit later, and that's kind of our second major era of the year. It was miserable. I went from like, kid you not, I had a 77 win percentage during that entire snow thing. And I think I dropped down to like 52% once Breach hit. Like I top aided the Leaving a Legacy open that was in that time period, like the first week that Breach was out. And I was like, do I even want to go? I can't beat the Breach deck at all. And it turns out that there's only two people in the room smart enough to play it. So this was one of the best examples I, I think I've ever seen. Where during spoiler season, everyone was like, yeah, that's that's probably playable. It's kind of cute what you can do with Brain Freeze. And then a couple of weeks later, once the list started to get polished, everyone was like, oh god, what have they done? This isn't okay. This is cheaper Yawgmoth's will. Uh, like, like the, that card, like off the spoilers, I feel like I had a slightly different reaction. Like I had, like I saw like, oh, it's like a... a it's mostly Yawgmoth's will, kind of, if you can fill your graveyard at first. Like, that that could have some utility. But uh, somebody, I think it was Justin Gennari, tweeted nine words that, like, broke that card for me. And those words were, brain freeze me, brain freeze me, brain freeze you. And I was just like, oh my god, <laughs> this is not reasonable. I didn't realize it was, like, 
gonna snap Legacy in half and be like the quickest ban with the least information that there's ever been in Legacy history. But uh, I, I, when when like that line emerged, I was like, oh shit, this is real. I want to give a quick shout out to Stefan Schultz. Uh, goes by uh, Cedrus in a lot of places, but also like King of Traders on Twitter. He was the first person to break breach in my eyes. Uh, Ced created this uh, Jeskai list the head enlightened tutors and then later on maybe three weeks later because like the deck was only around for a month so like a week before it got banned rodrigo innovated a intuition list and like that's the list that a lot of people think of but said was really the one to come up with the winning formula at first like a lot of people knew it was broke but didn't really figure out a coherent deck list and then said was just like here let me do this for you yeah, everyone was trying to make it Grixis, because, like, Grixis are the storm colors, obviously. Just look at uh, Ad Nauseam, look at the Epic Storm. Like, that, we have this shell already built, let's just put it in. But becoming Jeskai to be, like, the kind of, like, in, in Vintage, like, it's like a Xerox deck that can just combo you later. And, and in Legacy, uh, like, Silence was the, like, bringing the Epic Storms, old skeletons out of the closet, and breaking Legacy in a different shell, like that. That the Jeskai build was the one that fucked it up. It did not feel fun being on the other side of silence. Let me tell you, it was pretty miserable. <laughs> <laughs> it's even more messed up. Like I, I don't need to tell you this, but like getting like silenced when you're like me is like, oh, I'm probably gonna lose this turn. But you, you're like, rit 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 burning wish silence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have to commit to it. So uh, when we were making the show notes for this episode, because we're in the Breach era, there was a card in this era printed for Snow that you might not be thinking of. It's Uro. I could have swore when we were making the show notes for this, Phil listed Uro uh, for later on. And I was like, Phil, that's a 2019 card. What are you talking about? And then I looked at the set. I was like, holy shit, that was this year? Like, I just couldn't believe it. Underworld Breach gives Uro's keyword to your graveyard. They're from the same set. They use the same mechanic. Yeah. I don't know. But it just like, it felt like Uro's been around longer. This breach deck was so hard to fight, even when you were trying to fight it. So normally, if you want to beat a combo deck, there's specific cards you can play and, and you just crap on that deck. When you walk into the room with a sideboard full of like null rods and mind break traps, you're 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 there to kill Bryant. Like you have some personal grudge, you're there to take him down. But when you were trying to beat Breach, like it was so much harder. It's like, okay, I'm safe. I have this counter spell and a surgical extraction. And then all of a sudden you get comboed off through it and you're like, what what did I do wrong? Did I mess up or is the deck just that good? And the answer was usually the deck's just that good. Well, the deck had Force of Will, Daze, Silence, and then in the board, it had Wear Tear. And it was just, like, really difficult to find a way of effectively beating that deck. And it had, I mean, it has the Blue Cantrip Suite as well. So, like, anything that you wanted to do, you it just had the answer. Between the Cantrips or, like, the Sed List with the Light Tutor was like, okay, I'll get Seal of Cleansing. It's just, it always had the right tool for whatever situation it was in. Yeah, and it, it also just wasn't a glass cannon deck either. Like, value breaches were a thing. Like, I'm going to value breach, I'm going to net two cards out of this and blow up two of your permanents, I'll try again in a couple of turns. Yeah, definitely. And it was scary, like, and this is true for a lot of legacy decks like Doomsday, Sneak and Show, Omnitel. 
the force of will combo deck is terrifying because you don't know if you're going to die on turn two or turn six and you have to respect it it's like playing in splinter twin and modern back in the day or anything like that like you have to respect and you can't overextend because if you do they're going to kill you so you're playing the scare game the entire time but the th- thing that was scary about breach is it could flip the switch so quickly on when it decided to kill you yeah uh like what you said is exactly true and i I remember luis scott vargas writing an article back when splinter twin was the 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 s tier of modern which was basically like like the math i I forget exactly but let's say like 30 percent or whatever that they could turn for you like actually have like pastor might into untapped splinter twin and like lsb was just like you have to jam like, if you refuse to tap out ever, you're going to lose. Like, just take your 70% to survive the un- that turn four untap and get ahead on board, or else you're just going to lose to their control deck. And uh, like like you said, Breach, very much the same thing. And bringing it to a, a more present-day comparison, a lot of the same people that were farming with Breach are currently farming with Doomsday. And I, I don't think Doomsday is, like, broken on the in the same sort of way that breach was like, I think that deck is fine and cool to exist, but uh, it's a lot of the same people playing the same sort of game with just a different shell. Doomsday is also somewhat hard to interact with. Like a lot of times, like you have say two pieces of interaction, but they cast a doomsday that resolves and you're like, okay, I have this surgical extraction and this wasteland is, is this going to be enough? Well, we've gone over this on other episodes, too, that, like, the Doomsday hate doesn't cross over with the Storm hate, and a lot of people just don't play flexible enough cards. Yeah, and, and, like, a lot of people have said that they let Doomsday resolve and then fight once they're committed. Like, make your pile. Like, let them make their pile. If they choose wrong, they lose. And that scares the shit out of me. Like, sometimes I agree with it. Like, if you're if you have like force of will and stifle or something like if you can attack the the thassa's oracle trigger because like cavern of souls is going to be in the pile you can't counter the oracle but if you can counter the trigger and protect your counter of the trigger you might be able to like beat a doomsday pile pretty reliably but uh it is really scary and depends on what answers you have like if you board it in fluster storm you gotta hit the doomsday because they're not going to cast another spell uh, that that you can counter so also, there's yeah, bad people out there that are running two oracles, so, like, the stifle trick might not even work. Yeah, and depends. Like, it all comes down to what the Doomsday player thinks they need to beat and how they make their pile, and I think there's basically always a checkmate, like, if they, depending on what level they're operating on and what they think you have. My favorite example of losing to Doomsday was in my curse stream that I recently did. I had Leyline and Helm in play. And there was something weird. Like, I think my opponent was playing, like, an Aether Vial build or, or something like that. They, they were doing something crazy so that they could potentially, like, Thassa's Oracle me at instant speed. And so I, I forced a shuffle on their library with a Field of Ruin and then activated Helm. And I'm like, well, hopefully this is good enough to get the win. And I hit a Street Wraith and then they put Thassa's Oracle into play and I died. And it was just like... what. <laughs> I did so much and it didn't matter yeah, that that was just a straight up coin flip right like if you if you hit oracle instead of wraith you win yep 
uh, but like Wraith happened to be in the pile. Your your shuffle happened to put it on top of Oracle. Yeah, I, I, I do remember watching that and it was really thrilling. Yeah, I, I don't remember what the exact scenario was, but there, there was something weird where I couldn't activate at like the time that I wanted to. I was playing around something. It was it was weird. So the next era would be companions. And the notes here, I didn't write them, say wonderful skill testing format. Playing legacy in this uh, time period often felt like playing chess. Like the better player usually won. And like you didn't necessarily have to be playing Grixis Delver with Luris, but it probably gave you a slightly better percentage. As long as you had a companion in your deck, you were somewhat competitive. And it was really skill testing. Like I believe Phil probably wrote that. But magic was a lot smaller. Like you weren't running, you weren't doing haymakers. Like it wasn't Oko versus Uro versus some other giant thing like Clothis or whatever. No, it was two drop or get the fuck out. Yes. And everything, there was so many micro decisions in every game that was really fun to play. But it did get stale after, you know, a month and a half of just like, all right, I'm going to move my pawn here, like, etc. Yeah, like that, that's... The problem is that that's not Magic the Gathering, that's chess. Like I, I, I've said before on this podcast that chess is basically a, a format with a high skill mirror and no other decks are viable. And that's mostly how uh, Legacy felt at the time. It was like, which flavor of Luris are you? Uh, like, are, are you like Bug or Grixis or Storm? But like everyone was, everyone was Luris and the... The Zerda Planeswalker control combo deck that emerged right at the end of that format was pretty cool and doing something different. I actually never got a chance to play that, where like every single one of your permanents was like a fetch land or a planeswalker or Grim Monolith or Basalt Monolith. Like that that was a pretty cool deck, but they they smartly took out Zerda when they took out Luris because they realized that it was just gonna trickle down. So uh what was interesting about looking at the companion stuff is that there was these charts being posted to the legacy subreddit at the time where it was like, these are the decks that did well in the Thursday PTQs. Uh, these are the companions that they played. And you could see over time that the other companions just slowly evaporated. Like at first, like Yorion was 12%. And then, you know, the next week it was 7%. And then like by week four, it was just like 0%. Like, why would you ever play Yorion when Lurus exists? Like even the Miracles decks were like, no, we're going to play Lurus and Bobbles and use our Bobble to trigger Terminus on your turn. Like, yeah, the, I, I was, I was a Yorion stan. I still am. But that, is not that was not where you wanted to be i i probably have like five or six yorion videos posted from that era and one luris video that i I was like right at the end i was like uh i guess i should get on board with this like i had to buy a luris like (laughs) like i didn't buy one right away because like we talked about earlier it was crazy expensive like for a card that you only need one copy of it wasn't it like 35 to 50 ticks for a while like for the worst week or so yeah it dropped down to like 20 week two or three. Yeah, and, and that still felt like a lot to me for a card that every deck only needs one of. And like, uh, so I, I just kept waiting for the price to drop, playing Zerda, playing Yoriad, and then Luris just never dropped because it turned out every single player needs one because that's the only deck you can play. Uh, so uh, yeah, I didn't play a lot of Luris. I played a lot of Yorion, but I remember that chart and it was super cool. At like standard was just like, 
filtering all the companions out until only Karuga was getting played because it was legal with Fires of Invention. Nice fucking format, Wizards. Thanks for that. But and in the other direction, like yeah, like like standard decks were getting fatter with Karuga and legacy decks were getting thinner with Luris. Just uh, linearly polarizing the formats. So one thing that was really kind of terrible about this period was the difference between a good and bad deck. So let's go to back to previous formats for a minute. Let's say you're playing in like the Miracle Top era or the Deathrite Shaman like Grixis Delver era. If you just wanted to show up with whatever deck that you've been playing for years, that was fine. Like your win percentage probably wasn't the greatest, but you were you were still at least somewhat competitive. And in the companion era, if you were not playing a companion, your deck was not viable. And that was basically just like full stop true. There were a couple exceptions, but that meta was warped. Yeah, it, it's like setting up a checker checkers across from a chess player. Here <laughs> they have knights and queens and rooks, and you can just move diagonally one space. I think that we should move past that idea. To be honest, that hey, my deck is always going to be viable. Like that might have that's what SCG advertised Legacy as in 2011, 2012 to get people to show up to their events. I don't think that's been true even during the Miracles era. I think that was a trap that people fell into to fill seats, and. I mean, good job on Star City's part because they convinced a bunch of people of this lie for over a decade, but your deck was never that competitive. And I'm not saying you in particular, Phil. I'm saying that like a lot of people out there that thought like, I can run my Teferi's Vacation deck in a Star City Open and do reasonably well. That is a choice that you can make for $40, Uh, but you do not deserve to make day two. No one is entitled to winning. You have to make the best decision possible for your success. And we just need to get past that because I see that come up all the time on, you know, like the Leaving a Legacy Facebook group or the subreddit where people are like, you know, what? I think that my deck should still be viable. We need to get rid of these cards. That's not how magic works. Like your cards aren't you don't deserve to win. Yeah. A- asterisk there. When I said anything. I, what I really meant was any sort of strategy that was, like, powerful. Like, if you want to show up with a Tier 2 deck, that's fine. If you want to show up with your, like, Pet Nick Fit deck, like, you you know you're there to have fun, right? Like, that that's what you're there for. I would like to put an asterisk on that asterisk that I think Nick Fit specifically is fine i think nick fit is firmly in that space of like this is a thing you can do in legacy and it'll win some of the time but the nick fit to fairy vacation build that that's one that you should be yeah you're like that you know you like like the meme of like the guy on the podium like pounding champagne and then it zooms out and he's like ninth on the podium or whatever (laughs) uh like that if, if you want to be the, the person who's like at table 193, still playing at zero and X in not round nine, and then you jump up and down because you finally pulled off your combo, like that's fine. I think that is totally cool. And I love that magic allows for that space to exist. The, the Johnny who like, it was worth $40 to get a tournament win with Teferi Vacation. Like, get it like that go go fucking for it but like uh i i i do agree with bryant uh in that 
if you insist on playing your meme strat and just feel like given enough time, like throwing enough shit at the wall, you deserve a top eight once in a while. Uh, that's that's just not realistic in tournament magic. All right. So the next one is, or the next era or time period is Rug Delver. But I think it's important to talk about here how we even did an episode called Yorion Rises at the beginning of this time period because everyone assumed Snow was back. Like, companions were finally gone. Breach was gone for a while. Like, everything is going to return to Snow, right? Like, that's just, like, the logical conclusion. Nope. Yeah. Wrong called shot. Like, Snow coming back was eventually true, but, like, the Rug Delver decks of this time period just became so tuned so quickly and just felt like the best deck in the format almost yeah, this, to a problematic degree almost yeah, this, this is where uh like dread they people really figured out dreadhorde arcanist like i think the the Luris companion era forced people to think about that card more uh like i don't have lists in front of me maybe it was already a, a obvious four of in rug delver in january of last year i i don't actually know but my memory is that like Luris forced you to like drop the hooding mantles, drop the true name nemesis, like whatever nonsense you were still farting around with. Like now we 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 got a taste of what Dreadhorde Arcanist is in the Luris era, and people were like, actually, Tarmogoyf sucks. Like, let's just play four of this because for a while it was like you know like four Tarmogoyf, one or two Dreadhorde Arcanist. Then it was like you know three and three or whatever, and people were like fiddling with the numbers. It but. No, it's just Dreadhorde Arcanist. And then from there, we figured out that this endless stream of card advantage can support six or seven Force of Wills. And then uh, the the rest is history. Like, I feel like this all came together. Also, now that Luris is out, you can play Oko. Like, that. that's another factor involved. Yeah, every time that Rug Delver... Well, I should say, every time that Delver ends up with good endgame and good card advantage at the same time, it it's spooky. I would agree with that. And like Brian mentioned, uh, and I, I didn't think about mentioning this until now, but Delver Shells definitely did learn about Dreadhorde through the Luris era. And similarly, the Epic Storm learned about Tendrils of Agony. Like, yes, we played it for years in the sideboard, but we saw how good it was in the main deck again with Wishclaw Talisman. So like, I think more than just Delver learned things through the Luris era about optimizing your decks. Yeah, uh, Lawrence Harmon uh, just recently put out an article on Channel Fireball where his basic uh, like thesis was Rug Delver was never good. It was just built correctly. Like the old Rug Delver, like Nimble Mongoose, like 2012-2013 uh, Rug Delver. Like that, that was the best deck in Legacy. But was it actually that good or was it just the only deck that actually figured out it should just play brainstorm ponder preordain maximize good draws uh like miracles caught on eventually but it took a while yeah like like back then like lawrence his article pointed out that like uh esper stoneblade and decks like that just weren't even playing ponder it was just like we had brainstorm and then our cards <laughs> and it's like i hope the cards are good because that's all i got it's like Figuring out like that Ponder is part of the, the cantrip package. It deserves to be the core of most decks that are trying to do that. Like that just wasn't happening back then. 
And I think that Laura sort of forced that those lessons on us as a format that every deck just got a lot tighter in in his wake. How are you going to fit Riptide Laboratory into your deck if you're running four ponder? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's why people watched Star City in 2012. They wanted to see that Riptide Lab bouncing a Vendillion click in a natural order being protected by Mental Mist Up. Like, that's what they were there for, Brian. Uh, I, I know I was there too. <laughs> I, I still own those Riptide Labs that I, I use to bounce my Venser and Vendillion clicks for the hard lock. I remember. Good times. Uh, uh, we actually won a... There was a, a vintage event in uh, uh, that uh, Calvin Hodges ran. Uh, Calvin rules, by the way, Blackmagic Gaming. Uh, many years ago. It was a- around this era. And three people played this deck. We called it Dance Magic Dance. It only existed for one tournament. And it, it was named after David Bowie, the Spirit of the Labyrinth. And uh, Rich Shea, myself, and Craig Berry were the three people who played this deck ever in the history of Magic. All three of us top-aided that tournament. And the the it was basically like a Caracas Riptide Lab deck. And the hard lock was Teferi, Big Teferi, Five Mana Teferi, whatever his name is. Mage of Zalfir, is that what that one's called? Like Blue 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 2 Teferi? It has Flash, okay. yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it has Flash, and your opponent's... Uh, can't cast cards at instant speed. Uh, Caracas, Vendillion Click, and Spirit of the Labyrinth. So it it was just like a hard luck. Your opponent never draws a non-land again. And this was in a period of vintage where Shops was the best deck. This was for Lodestone Golem vintage, by the way. So like Spirit of the Labyrinth trades with Lodestone Golem. We had like main deck Devout Witness for the infinite disenchants. And like it, it was just perfectly meta positioned. We had a ton of basic lands we could play and uh that's just like a thing you could do in eternal magic back then and that was vintage <laughs> so like legacy was definitely full of vencers and shit like uh joe Lissette was known for inventing vencer in in miracles like he he made the uh the cavern of souls build of miracles that just had a bunch of wizards in it that can't be countered and one of my favorite legacy quotes is uh like joe Lissette was streaming and someone was like in the chat was like, are you still dirtling around with Venser? And he like yelled at the camera. I'm not dirtling. I'm dominating. <laughs> 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 and that that's what I think in my head every time I cast Venser to this day. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great story. So they go back to Rugged Delver for a second. And I mean, I know we're not supposed to stay on track, but uh so we saw like Dreadhorde being optimized. We saw Oko's numbers go up because I I think the first couple lists only had like two Oko. And then before you know it, we saw three. And then we started to see force and negation being played in higher numbers. Like we saw the force number go from five to six because we found out how good it is at protecting your Dreadhordes and Okos. And when you have the card advantage from Dreadhorde and Oko, it's worth losing that extra card more often because you will recuperate it later. And we did it, uh, an episode uh, at some point, I think it was like episode 30 or 31, where we talked about, like, if we were wizards, would we do anything? And Brian, out of the three of us, was pretty much the only one that was like, maybe I think we let it go for a little bit. Let's see how stuff shakes out. And then Skyclave Apparition happened, and I think it was a good catalyst for change. The first few weeks, Death and Taxes did very well. 
And then, you know, maybe not so after that. Like, we saw Yorion taxes come, but Skyclave was the real thing. Like, Skyclave forced Rugdalver to change. They couldn't just run six forces and spell pierces and beat everything. Like, they had to start running removal again. And we saw Lyst start playing two chain lightning and other stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously I've gushed about this card plenty. Um, but I can't overstate enough how important it is for non-blue decks to have flexible answers to things. Um, Abrupt Decay is another like great example of that, where a card that can just answer everything slots so well into decks like, say, Maverick, that don't have selection to find specific answers at any given time. So having something that can answer Delver and Dreadhorde Arcanist and Oko or Karn all at the same time is is just insane. Thought for you yeah, too. Like it was funny for me seeing that like the Death and Taxes players like come back like after a Skyclave apparition was printed. Like, wait, Legacy is great. Legacy is healthy again. This is so cool. When like what was printed was a kind of pushed Oblivion Ring. And, like, obviously that's uh, sort of dismissive. Uh, like, Phil is right. It, it's hugely important that uh, Death and Taxes gets an abrupt decay sort of effect. But, like, for those of us who weren't trying to make Mono White happen, <clears throat> the ones who were, like, playing Abrupt Decay and Pyroblast the whole time, we were like, oh, yeah, kind of, like, welcome to the crew. Like, you can kill Noko <laughs> now. That's really all you needed to be competitive in Legacy. But, like, uh, trying to play a deck... This kind of circles back to Brian's, like, your cards aren't entitled to be good conversation, where it's like, if you're playing, if you choose to continue forcing a deck that can't answer a ubiquitous three drop, then, like, obviously you're going to have a bad time. Uh, Pyroblast was here the whole time. Abrupt Decay was here the whole time. Uh, like, even Miracles decks. Like, I had Council's Judgment, Unexpectedly Absent, all that shit in my decks. Like, just playing an answer matters but it is very nice that they printed such a good answer for those niche uh those particular places that can't easily splash i have a question for you too so it's the way that phil worded this that triggered it in my head phil said for non-blue decks to have versatile answers and then he mentioned abrupt decay abrupt decay traditionally probably sees more play in blue decks than non-blue maybe i'm wrong there but it's at least close and Abrupt Decay obviously is green block. Do you think that the problem is that the hybrid cards aren't double color restricted at all? Not that Abrupt Decay needs to be three mana or anything like that, but like Skyclave Sky Apparition is white white. Do you think if we saw more answers that were instead of being a colorless and red, if they were red red, for example, or green green, that we could stop giving blue these powerful things? Like, in my opinion, Leave Old Chin have been blue. Uh, Hull Breacher shouldn't have been blue. Like blue doesn't, blue doesn't need that effect. Like it's just like blue's already the best color. Give that to white. Give it to another color that could use the help. I have a but great answer for this question. I think that if maybe I'm wrong here, like this is just a random thought that I'm having right now. But if they were double of one color, maybe we could stop giving things to blue. Or is that wrong? I mean, all I need to say is Arkham's Astrolabe, and then green green for Uro isn't an issue, right? Like. Double off color is so not an issue right now for legacy decks. Uh, yeah, so you're you're totally right. The like 
getting deeper into the color pie. So I, I guess that's really the, the question. Like when they, they cost cards like for color pie considerations, like Abrupt Decay, a card like that, that's a, a perfect gold card. Like it's it destroys a permanent. It does so in a way that fights blue, which is green's enemy color. And like uh, that that's like a perfectly designed gold card. Uh, I, I don't know if making it like green green black or whatever would make it better like we have like undermine and absorb from invasion uh and absorb was reprinted more recently it's in standard now i think uh where it's like white white blue or like supreme verdict is like white white blue like you do have to be on the whiter side and i have lost games because i have blue blue white instead of white white blue so yes that does matter a lot uh it's just they, they have to consider like color pie implications and not just gameplay implications. Like a card like Searing Blaze, that's a red fucking card. Like red, red is the right cost for Searing Blaze. Uh, but like making like incinerate red, red, just so it's harder to splash. Like that's that's a card that you should be able to splash. Like I know a little bit about fire magic, so I can deal three damage to stuff. Like I think that that like that's fine. Um, like I, I think we're getting into like. Yes, definitely. Double color is harder to cast than single color, harder to splash. And uh, But uh, there's a whole bigger magic design conversation there than just like protecting legacy blue decks from getting another tool. I would agree. So in my thought, I wasn't suggesting Abrupt Decay B3 mana, but like what if instead, hypothetical, and I'm not trying to go, like, go and design cards right now, but for an example, like let's look at Eliminate. If it was black, black, but didn't have the three mana cost restriction. Like that's the sort of thing where I'm that I'm thinking about here, where if it was just like destroy any creature or planeswalker for black, black, because it's more restrictive, like that sort of design. Yeah. I mean, they probably will print that card someday. Like uh, a lot of it. Like, I, I think the, the frame of this discussion is too narrow to be particularly useful. Like the, uh, like how do we design cards so legacy blue decks can't splash them is just such like a, a niche thing. And like, I, I feel you, like, I know like we're a legacy podcast, obviously like we're up in it. Like I understand it, but like saying that, like, like eliminate, which is like just playable in, in like standard, which is what they designed for because like questing beast laughs it off. Like uh, the elder Gargaroth, nice eliminate nerd like that that sort of stuff like that that card is well designed even like kind of mediocre in the format it's meant for and it's a solid modern card and then like we have to go all the way back to legacy until it's like oh great now grixis can cleanly answer an oko like and 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 still they had like pyroblast anyway so i i i just have a hard time finding where like the watsi design team can possibly worry about this in card design and then there's a whole nother issue of when you start adding double colored symbols to some of these cards, they actually become worse for the mono colored decks. Uh, and that might sound weird to say, but a white white card is not the easiest thing to cast in a deck like Death and Taxes because you have at minimum eight colorless sources in your deck and you're trying to cheat on mana a little bit with Aether Vial. And the same is often true of other mono colored decks. Take something like Red Prison, which again has like probably eight colorless sources as well. 
So, so Phil, I feel costs. less bad for you if I quit running into death and taxes players trying to play Mishra's Factory too. Like you guys <laughs> do it to yourself. Like I, I don't want to hear that excuse because like I'll get paired against some of these people and I'm like, just like, why are you playing that in your deck? So no, Phil, I refuse to accept. Uh, well, Phil, Phil is. I will come to Phil's defense here. Phil is on the more white sources than normal side, the less Caracas than normal side. Like Phil builds his house with a solid foundation and like like i i feel it though like the uh like i i try to make blue white work whenever i can which is not a monocolor deck obviously but it's two colors that's one less than most legacy decks and i play a shitload of basic lands to make sure that i don't get taken off a color and still having white white on time is frequently an issue like if i ever draw like the one hall of heliod's generosity i'm like damn it and then i just die because i can't supreme verdict like that that there's there's a lot going on there and 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 yeah like if supreme verdict was just like blue white two i would never lose another game (laughs) never again no creature could defeat me but uh stumbling finding that white white especially in a deck that also wants blue blue like uh, that's tough and then uh, death and taxes of course we've all had those games against death and taxes where you they go like uh, Rashad and Port Aether Vial, you force it, and then they go like Wasteland, pass the turn, pass the turn, pass the turn, go to discard, pass the turn, go to discard, and then they're dead. Yep. So to circle back to the Skyclave conversation, uh, so it was the catalyst, and then we saw Death and Taxes sort of die out. We haven't really seen Rugdalver go back to the double four slash chain lightning stuff. Why is that, Phil? Why are they still running chain lightnings and more removal and less free forces? Because, like, in theory, if I'm, I'm going to use air quotes here, but, like, if Death and Taxes is dead, what's the reason for continuing this change? I think you have to respect the other mid-rangey decks of the format so much right now. Um, Green-White Reclaimer is a great example of that, where you have things like Elvish Reclaimer and the Dryad that you, like, need to be able to answer quickly or they start doing disgusting things that pull your opponent ahead very, very quickly. Also, just the mirror. Like, Dreadhorde Arcanist mirrors. Uh, you can force a will that thing, but your opponent has force of will and force of negation. Uh, I guess they can't force of negation to protect it. But, like, you're, it, it feels like the Deathrite era again. Like, when, when in Deathrite mirrors, if your opponent had one and you didn't, you lose. Uh, just like bitter blossom mirrors in old standard like if we both have one we can play kind of an interesting game if neither of us have one we have kind of an interesting game but it's an absolute steamroll if someone has one and the other doesn't and uh playing six lightning bolts is a better way to fight over dreadhorde arcanist than playing six force of wills yeah i totally agree and that's honestly one of the biggest 2020 complaints from most people is that like steamrolling nature of one person having a Dreadheart Arcanist or an Oko or an Uro and the other person not being able to stop it. And the game usually effectively ends after about two turns of one of those cards unchecked. Yeah, so I, I've, I'm i on record in a number of platforms saying this, but I think Dreadheart Arcanist is the bannable card in Legacy right now. Like I actually think it's unhealthy and warping and should not be in the format. Uh, I I still hold true to three mana should have the potential to win you the game in Legacy. So I'm like pretty comfortable with Oko existing. And I think Uro just doesn't even belong in this pile. Like 
I I get that like over the course of forever, Uro keeps coming back. Like that's the flavor of Uro. He's escaping the underworld. But like you have to spend three mana to get it into your graveyard and then get five other cards in there and spend four mana of pretty restrictive colors to get it back into play where it can be answered by Caracas, Red Blast, Swords of Plowshares, etc. Like I think Uro, if that's your plan to win and your deck is set up to win with Uro, that's a reasonable thing to do. But like I think Dreadhorde Arcanist should go and I think Uro is, I wouldn't be sad to see it go. I wouldn't stump for it to stay if it was like on the block, but like I'm also pretty fine with Oko existing, but I don't think Uro is remotely bannable in this format. Yeah, I, I think it's just like Uro plus Oko together at the same time is yes, just like, that, like, fuck me, I'm a fair deck, like, why? Yeah, that, that like blue-green something bad's gonna happen on turn three every single time feeling of Legacy, like, uh, yeah, I can respect that. So I noticed this this week on the subreddit where people are talking about how Snow is uh, taking the mantle over Rugdelver. Because Goldfish has Snow as the first deck and Delver as the second. And it's like 12% to 8%. And the Goldfish data isn't perfect because they don't give us real data percentages from leagues. We only get real data percentages from challenges. Granted, we do have two challenges a week, etc. That said, the data is skewed. And I'm not trying to crap on Goldfish here. I actually think that they're a very helpful resource. That said, they have Pokepile listed as Snow. That is a hybrid of the two, probably, if we're, you know, trying to be fair here. And it should probably be listed as something different, uh, because it's not really a snow deck. Like, it's playing Stifle and Days and Wasteland, and, like, those aren't really snow cards. But on top of that, they're now counting that new Days and Doing Holebreacher deck as snow as well. And it's a little misrepresenting to see snow at 12% and Delver at 8 because if you take those other two decks out, it's probably closer to eight and eight. And then those, you know, random decks being 4% or whatever, um, maybe not even that high. Maybe it's like 10 and two. I, d- I don't know, but it doesn't, f- it doesn't seem like it's true data and people just like skim the percentages and then like regurgitate it on social media. And I think it takes a, just a tad more of a bit of a deep dive to get real numbers. So I, I think it like one issue is a lot of times those decks are very difficult to tell which one you're actually playing against in leagues. Like if, if you are playing a game one against one of those decks and it ends before like turn five, do you know what deck you're playing against? No, you're playing against snow. Like I, I, I think it's somewhat genuine to lump all of those together conceptually like you can you can subdivide these crazy like uh this is a miracles variant this is a bant breacher variant um but but miracles has its own category in goldfish i mean strifle pile has its own category like why can't these yeah like i i'm kind of between both of you here like i agree that like if you sit down and keep your opening seven knowing that you're against pokepile instead of snow that's meaningful information to have but also like both of those decks are going to go like basic land arkham's astrolabe or oko over the course of the game uh but like just knowing if you need to play around stifling days or if you need to play around like ice bank huddle or whatever like those are just like things to know uh and i i i feel like they're different decks but 
And they probably should be divided up. I'm going to land on Bryant's side of this discussion, though. Though, uh, I do agree with Phil that... uh, I guess it depends also, like... Like, I... I, Like, you can watch my videos and you'll see my opponent is, like, Basic Island Astrolabe. And I'm like, okay, uh, we're playing against uh, a snow deck. And then, like, I just go to fetch on turn three and I get stifled. And I'm like, oh... This is Pokepile. I could have played around that. Now I'm going to lose when I would have won against, or I would have still been in the game against Snow. I'm like just wrecked against Pokepile. Like just, the, there is meaningful difference in how those decks play out. Yeah. Though I think this is a uh, subclass thing, though. Yeah. I is it are those decks like ad nauseum tendrils versus the Epic Storm? Like they're both dark ritual decks. They're both going to tendrils you. Blah blah blah. Like. Is this that same conversation? Because obviously those are different decks, but uh, like they aren't categorized together as Storm on Goldfish. So uh, I think I'm going to err on on Brian's side of the this argument, though I, I am close to the middle. So the reason I bring this up is people are using that as a justification for why Dread Horde shouldn't be touched, and I just don't think that's true. Like if you actually look at it, Dread Horde is in some of these quote snow decks uh but we should probably hit our second section of the day which is card review and discussion of 2020 so we have this broken down into four categories two pushed meaningful upgrades narrowly pushed cards and resurgent old cards because you know like sometimes old cards make a meaningful comeback like they might not be new printings but like hey they hit twice yeah, so so obviously, I mean, two pushed are the ones that got banned. Uh, Underworld Breach and Companions. We've already spent a lot of time on that. Uh, we don't need to hit it again. Dreadhorde Arcanist is a 2019 card, but its presence is felt firmly throughout 2020. I, I feel like that should be on the two pushed cards of 2020 list, even though I printed before. I get it, but it should be there too. So let's get into the meaningful upgrades, which is, we, we've touched a bit of this already because it's all intertwined, but I'll take on the first one because I already did, which is Uro. Like that uh, is a, like, I don't think this card it should be banned, uh, as I already said, but like in, in the the control decks, like you gain a little bit of life, you draw a little bit of cards, like eventually someday when your opponent is out of any other resource, it emerges from the graveyard to win the game. Like, I think this is a totally... I think Legacy is the right place for it. Let me say that. I think it's bullshit in Standard. I think it's bullshit in Historic. And I'm not sure I like what it's done to Modern, but I, I don't play enough of that format right now to have a ban opinion. But I think it's right in Legacy. Also, it's not a card that, like, objectively looks that good. Like... When I looked at Uro in spoiler season, I didn't see this card breaks every format that it's going to be in outside of like vintage where it's just outclassed. And then you just like get into practice against this thing and it's like, wow, this is so much value. It's letting this control player get ahead on land drops without like forcing them to play a a card like Explore that does something early but doesn't actually win the game on its own. This is just, like, such a good card in practice. Yeah, it, it's got a touch of the Deathrite Shaman uh, appeal, which is uh, a mana dork that doesn't peter out in the late game. 
So when you said it doesn't look good, I assume that you meant uh, aesthetically with Brian's <laughs> the sucking yeah, face, the, the slurping, the, the <laughs> magic arena slurping of the battlefield. So the They're next card is Thassa's Oracle, which, you know, hit 2020 pretty hard. Another Theros Beyond Death card. I was actually on Leaving a Legacy as a guest uh, the week that it was spoiled. And Patrick Uglow, to mention him twice in one episode, name drops, was like, I hate Laboratory Maniac so much, and then didn't know that this was spoiled that week. Like, Pat must be having a really tough 2020, because Thassa's Oracle hit Legacy hard. We saw Cephalid Breakfast come back, which is like a deck from 2008, like due to Thassa's Oracle. Oops, all spells finally got a good win condition. And then a card that we're going to mention in a little bit, Doomsday. Like, Thassa's Oracle is just a really versatile win condition, and a lot of these sort of mill yourself decks. It was like, it was the win con in Breach, too, wasn't it? Or was that just in the modern build? I think just the modern one. Okay, yeah. So, like, Oracle showed up. It was the WinCon in Modern Breach. Uh, it's uh, it's played in Vintage. Uh, in Modern, it's also the WinCon in Ad Nauseum these days. Like, the the Lightning Storm is, like, optional, but you can just Thassa's Oracle easily. Um, it Thassa's Oracle got Inverter of Truths banned in Pioneer. Like, I played that deck at the Pro Tour. I, that deck was phenomenal. Uh, like, it felt like Splinter Twin. Like, genuinely, like, blue black control that could combo you on turn four or it could just kill you on turn 24 like so oracle has affected almost every format it's in even historic has the like uh 55 basic islands uh treasure hunt deck with thassa's oracle that can win oh, that's how that this. deck wins my opponent was casting those and i'm like what the fuck are you doing and i just <laughs> yeah, turned the- into johnny's pride mate sideways that was like a 10 10 and they died yep yeah, that that's the plan. Thassa's Oracle. So, so yeah, it was Oracle linked to me recently. Really cool. Someone shared the article where they were discussing why Oracle had the I Wing clause, and it's just like kind of funny. They're like, "Well, we wanted it to feel unique to Theros Beyond Death. We wanted it to have this like cool scry ability, but we we didn't feel like it was like legendary enough. So we decided to make it win the game." Like, if you're like you just read this, I'll have to find a link for you guys. But it's just like. Imagine being on the design team and having this pitch to you. It's like, what? Like, why does it need to win the game for two mana? Like, the card's fine. I'm not trying to say it should be banned or anything. It's just like, if I was in the card discussion room, I'd just be like, why? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like a weird ability to tack on. I, I, in, in the frame of Theros Beyond Death, which, what is more beyond death? It It's like giving yourself escape, the escape mechanic. Like, you're decked. You're out. Your next draw step is your last. And then, boop, boop, boop. I win instead. Emerge from the underworld. Also, just like, the the two mana, like, win the game if you have no cards in your library is pretty unique to Eternal formats. Like, the uh, scry 11 or 12 and then win the game on the following turn or whatever with, like, actual devotion to blue strategy. Like, that's pretty cool, too, which we don't get to talk about. In, in these old card formats, but Standard and Pioneer have a chance at just fair and square 20 cards left in my deck. Thassa's Oracle, GG. Hey, I, I have turned on some gods in, in Legacy before. I, I've gotten to turn those sideways. It's theoretically possible. Yeah, I in one of my recent videos, I was like running down all the combat math and I was just like, okay, I think we're okay. I think we're okay. Then my opponent like played Noble Hierarch, 
which animated Clothis, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> they were right there, weren't they? I faced this weird Risen Reef deck in Pioneer, where it just like made a bunch of like Risen Reefs and by like, copying them and cloning them, and then played like a Master of Waves into an Oracle, and I was like, did I really just die? Like, it was like turn four, they had like just played a Risen Reef, and I was like expecting to untap and kill them. And I was like, this was super cool, but I am very disappointed that I died. <laughs> like, they had a ton of devotion. Yeah, that is a lot of devotion uh, and just so many cards shredding out of your deck. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, like speaking of things that people liked, the double faced cards, um, the like modal cards were a huge hit with the magic community as a whole. I think people really enjoyed them for the limited experience. And there were a handful of degenerates that were like, I get to unsleeve and resleeve oops all spells with these like juicy shots in the arm that mean that I can play a longer game and try to go off again. I am so lucky, and I don't mean this as a brag, but like that I wasn't playing Legacy because I was testing for the Pro Tour during that month, because I would not have enjoyed playing Leagues. Like I was just like, I am not going to play Legacy right now because I have no interest in facing Oopsaw spells four times in a League. I played so many Mind Break Traps, like holy shit. I was on four in a lot of my decks. Yeah, the, the release of that set also lined up with uh, Eternal Weekend or PAX or like one of those God Account events, which I, we're going to talk about those in a little bit too. But like, just like the idea of paying like 90 tickets or whatever for your set of Agadim's Awakening, it would deter most people. But unless the except for the most determined degenerates, but like the just having access to everything, you're like, whatever, I'll fire a new league with oops, all spells. I don't give a shit <laughs> like that. That was also part of that perfect storm, because when Eternal Weekend ended, Oops All Spells was gone. All right, and next up we have Hull Breacher and, uh, I forget it, Agent? Opposition, uh, Opposition agent. agent. Opposition Agent. How do we feel about these? Well, one of those cards like... is a, like, multi-format all-star, and one of those cards is, like, borderline playable. Yeah, it, it feels kind of disingenuous to just have one bullet that says Hull Breacher <laughs> and Opposition Agent. <laughs> uh, like, I've played a couple Opposition Agent decks now. I, I played uh, Mono Black Curses and Agent was bad. And uh, coming up this week, I think it's releasing. Uh, it, it'll be out by the time this video drops. But uh, I got a donation deck list for Four Color Flash, where it just had uh, a bunch of opposition agents, bunch of hall breachers, bunch of snapcasters, contained him to priest, just play on your opponent's end step exclusively. And that deck was pretty good, except for opposition agent. Like, I, I would just cut all of them for basically any other legacy playable card uh, in the wake of that league. It's the sort of card that when it is good, it is backbreaking. And when it is bad, you're playing a card that's acceptable and limited, and that's about it. It's interesting because I do see a lot of snow decks still trying agent and some like there's the the days undoing breacher deck that people are still trying to make work. But like it's weird getting agented out of snow. Like I think it just doesn't seem like that. I'm sorry. I think it's the wrong home. Like I think if you're playing that you're playing it in a dark ritual deck and you're getting people on turn one the same way you are with a chalice or a trinosphere. And I did that in a recent league. My opponent turn one fetched, I went Dark Ritual Opposition Agent, and I basically won the game on the spot. But then there's so many other times where you don't have the mana to cast it at the right time, or, like, you've fallen behind on tempo, you can't afford to put that into play, even though it might be good long term. 
Yeah, I, I felt the exact opposite way as what you guys just said. Like off the spoilers, I was like, there is not going to be a black stompy deck that like there is. This is not going to supercharge pox. This if this has a home, it's going to be like a one or two of in a deck like snow that wants to start pinching off options in the mid to late game. Like once they get ahead, they want to start checking boxes to make sure that they keep that lead and just like being a flash threat that can fight over the monarch and like in like snow mirrors or like going long or whatever or like even against like snow versus maverick like they top deck that turn seven green sun zenith here it's like yoink with an opposition agent like i feel like that's a better home than trying to power that thing out because uh, i played curses in a league and uh, that deck had a lot of sort of fundamental problems with it uh where like having dark ritual in the same deck as chalice of the void and trinosphere it's like good luck with that uh there's a lot of dead draws after turn one in that deck and uh i i just think that playing opposition agent more fairly as part of a package is the right home if there even is one maybe it just sucks and anywhere that you would be playing opposition agent would be better as hall creature so i think it's safe to say that. that we all agree that these are like fine cards like they weren't too pushed they're in that you know that sweet spot whoa 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 hold on <laughs> like Hole Breacher is like maybe not going to be okay for Vintage long term. I, I don't know uh, so that I'm okay with saying that. Its numbers are dropping. Like I'm a PO player. Like most of the PO players have caught Hole Breacher. Like it's just it's when you added Hole Breacher, you have too many cards in your deck now that are bad against shops and uh, bizarre decks. Like you can keep up with the blue decks now, but you just can't beat the other two. Like Phil, I tried it for multiple challenges, multiple leagues. It's too much because you have Pyroblast, Flusterstorm, Mental Mystem. Now you're adding in Hole Breachers. Like, you just have too many dead cards in your deck. Isn't Hole Breacher great versus Bizarre? Like, activate Bizarre, no, it's, Hole it's Breacher. A replacement. Oh, shit. Yeah, not if they're dredging already. But, uh, like, I, I don't know. Like, I haven't touched a whole lot of Vintage, but uh, I think that card is good uh, there. Uh, maybe. Well, I mean, we'll see. Like, Narset got restricted, and Hole Breacher is better than Narset for the most part. So. Uh, like it's more castable and actually wins the game instead of just hanging out. Uh, I guess Narset's card advantage is better, but I don't know. Like we'll we'll see where it lands. But uh, I think both of these cards, going back to Brian's original point in Legacy, Hall Breacher is on the top end of fine, and Opposition Agent is on the bottom end of fine. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I agree with that. So this next card, Clothis, God of Destiny. We didn't talk about it during spoiler season, but I remember reading it and going like, this card's going to be good and standard. And then that was like the end of my thought. <laughs> it turns out it's just like really good in snow mirrors and against rug delver. It's it's not like too good. It's just really good, though, which is weird because like you can get your Oko into play and like you can gain enough life so that you can offset it. Uh, it, it does some really cool work along the way, chipping away at graveyards. It's just like a good, solid option to have. And it was a go-to sideboard card for a long time. And some people even tried shoving that into the main deck of a couple of different decks. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like a Relic of Progenitus with a Taste of the Deathrite Shaman. And like, one of those cards is banned and one sees play sometimes. And like... <laughs> If you average C's play sometimes with band, you get a good card. And that's Clothis. I think it also helped with coinciding of the death of Miracles uh, this year. Because like Miracles was like the king for a very long time. And they even stuck around 
post top banning. And 2020 is like really the year that snow replaced miracles. And we just saw like zero copies of celestial purge. And that helped with Clothis. That card was really hard to get off the table for a long time. Like, again, cards like Skyclave Apparition give you outs to things that otherwise might not be easily answerable, and that's a great example of one. I think we should let Brian take the next card, by the way, because I feel like me talking about this card would be a disservice. I agree. We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> Are there any other like famous shark words I can say? I don't know. Do, 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 do. All right. So All right. now I'm done. So. All right, Shark Typhoon. Uh, this card, obviously, I was very excited about when it was spoiled. Uh, I played Shark Still at, at one of the Eternal Weekend events. I played it at Gen Con. I recorded a number of leagues with it, uh, pairing it with Hall of Heliod's Generosity just for unlimited sharks and unlimited card advantage under a standstill. Just cat's ass. Like, that's the sort of legacy I want to play. And... Uh, while this card, I mean, the archetype does exist. I think this is firmly in that range of, like, uh, decks you can play that would be okay that we were talking about earlier. Like, you could show up with Shark still uh, time and time again to a Star City Open, and this one is in the range where you might put up a top eight once in a while. But, I mean, it's obviously not quite snow. And the... Uh, but, like, that endgame is sweet. Uh, it's gotten a bunch of uh, other... Other versions, uh, like White Faces played uh, Shark Shark Blade with uh, uh, Stoneforge Mystic, tried to bring that back. I've put it into like a combo shell with Replenish. I've put it into a combo shell with Energy Field and Helm. I've put it in a number of different uh, Jeskai, straight blue-white, uh, regular control decks with no combo finish. And I think that card is mega sweet and is like the perfect kind of card to exist in Legacy. Um, I hated it in standard in my pro tour testing, like, uh, the, the teamer rec deck played shark typhoon in a way that I hated, but in legacy, it's, it's a good friend, but not only all of that, it fits in nicely with this other card on the list I want to talk about, which is court of cunning. And we could say court of grace also just add that to the mix, uh, which a uh, court of grace is certainly not, uh, might not even be a meaningful upgrade, honestly, but it is a card you can play. But Court of Cunning is definitely a sweet card. And Shark Typhoon uh, can protect your monarchy. It can steal the monarchy back. It exists in the blue shell. It's an enchantment that, like, if you're doing some sort of replenish or enlightened tutor package, like Court of Cunning and Shark Typhoon, best friends. And uh, I'm just very happy with both of those printings. What do you guys think about Court of Cunning? Uh, I, I know that, like, in the early days, uh, like right when the set released, I released a league on YouTube where I played four of them and I did very well. And then uh, Jarvis streamed a slightly updated version of the deck, like, the next day. It got a lot of traction. A lot of, like, smart people were like, this card is bullshit. Like, is it? What do we think? Or is it just a meaningful upgrade? I'm wondering why if like I haven't played the card at all, so I'm just asking questions here. But like if the card is as good as you say it is, and I'm not saying that it's not, why isn't it seeing more play? Like we're still seeing a lot of like the same snow stuff. Like what is stopping this card from seeing more play, I guess, is what I'm asking. Uh, Probably that MTG Goldfish front page you were talking about where people are like, 
oh, snow is 14% of the metagame. <laughs> like, or like people being uncreative or like you complain all the time. Like nobody innovates with their decks, like stop whining, figure out how to win. And like, I have had a lot of success. Like, I don't think Court of Cunning should be a four of. I don't think it should be the centerpiece of a deck. That was just an early thought experiment that I happened to four uh, one a league with, like whatever. And Jarvis went five zero the next day. Uh, but like, uh, Pokemoki hybridized that. He has like one Court of Cunning in his Bant Hallbreacher deck. He just basically cut all the Court of Cunnings from uh, my court deck and replaced them with Hallbreachers, all but one. And like the deck got a lot better. Uh, but I think this is a tool. Like, I I don't think it's busted. I don't think it's, like, like I I think it's just a reasonable thing you can do. And I think that uh, in a format with Oko, which, uh, and Ice Fang Kawaddle, which are, like, functionally haste creatures against the Monarch, like, either by having Flash or by arriving without summoning sickness, uh, people are scared. And that's fine uh like if something happens to uh the the snow deck or if dreadhorn arcanist like these are these cards are very bad against delver so that's probably part of it it's just it's just a, a thing you can do and it, it's going to take either a meta shift or a lot of people working more than they are to to break it but for now i'm fine just being in the sandbox alone with court of cunning and because I, I'm having fun with it, and I think it's good. I like that you mentioned meta shift because a lot of people don't plan for that. They always think something needs to be banned, and sometimes all you need is a good shift in the meta, like the Skyclave Apparition printing, making rug respect creature decks again. Like sometimes that's all you need for your cards to become playable again. Yeah, like if if Snow shifts to a place where it just smushes Delver and just like it's just full of abrupt decays and uh, whatever, like. A Court of Cunning deck could farm that. And like, because Snow isn't particularly great at applying pressure in a lot of cases. Uh, if you back up your court with a Red Elemental Blast, uh, that answers all of their things that could take your Monarchy. Uh, so like that that's like a, a place where it could get good. Um, also, like people are like, oh my god, what if you mill their Uro? It's like, so I'll fucking Red Blast it, and then they die two turns later. Who cares? Like, that's fine. Uh I'm also drawing two cards a turn. So there's there's a meta place for it, but it is it is very soft against Delver, which is, uh, I think we all agree, the best deck right now. I know that Phil's really excited for the next section. So Phil, why don't you take it away? Yeah. So our next section is narrow pushed cards. And this is what I really like for Legacy. I like cards that are really strong, but have like one home like they they fit into a tribal deck or some fringe strategy that's not going to be like overpowered or anything like that and and they give like archetype specialists a, a, a nice treat and we got two in the same set um muxus and allosaurus shepherd both of which are incredibly powerful for their respective archetypes but it's really hard to port them over into other decks i would agree and i think it's like honestly it's a little bit of a shame that goblins died out so quickly after moxus like it was like the bee's knees to make another animal reference to the cat's butthole or whatever <laughs> it was that brian said but uh like moxus is like a sweet card like siege gang always felt a little underwhelming and moxus seems to be like pretty goddamn good right 
Uh, so like goblins finally got a a good top end that was better than uh, Siege Gang Commander. But like what annoys me sometimes is that like legacy players like they're like Alistar Shepherd's bullshit. I should get to counter everything. It's like no, this creature's like fine. Like I get that like it's a little bit pushed, and like that's the topic of what we're discussing right now. It's like these are push cards that are not dominating the format. Like elves coming back is a good thing. Like decks, like more decks being viable is a good thing. And people are just like, no, I shouldn't have to face elves. Like, no, like decks are allowed to get better over time. And that these are good examples of like healthy printings. I do want to say though, that Allosaurus Shepherd is at the absolute top of what I like. Like this card is like protection against Chalice of the Void and counter spells and a win condition on a one mana card. This card is very good. It is very, very strong. This, If this had been pushed any harder, I would be scared. Yeah, so I think the place where Allosaur Shepherd would be unreasonable is if it's a six-mana ability was your creatures are five-fives and not your elves are five-fives. Yeah. Like, like, the fact that it is this cool tool in any green deck, like, you could put it in a Green Sun Zenith package and just, like... You know, beat your mono, local mono blue player that's a thing you can do but if you're not an elf deck it's not going to win the game for you so uh just paying off exactly elves in such a way is, is super cool and like elves has been a great deck in legacy for a long time and you know what card is still legal in legacy plague engineer like you forget about that one like <laughs> elves the worst like other than uh, like counterbalance and and sensei stop, probably the worst thing for L. Or no, no, it's terminus. It's not even counterbalance. It's terminus. Since terminus, the worst thing that could happen to elves is plague engineer. So they de- they deserve a win. Like the the top ban was a win for elves, and th- they were just a solid meta game contender for a while. And then modern horizons printed plague engineer, and elves just fell into the abyss. So give them. Give them something. Let them play. Yeah, they got their destiny spinner. That that's what they got. Yes, uh, the the uh, the same upgrade that Enchantress got. Elves also got, but one of these decks is good. Man, just guys, Harold never seeing play ever again. What a shame. Fuck that card. <laughs> it wasn't getting played anyway. So there's one last card on this list that I added. Peer into the abyss. It is exactly what Phil described. It has one home. And it's a sorcery speed ad nauseum in the Epic Storm. Like for years, like we would say, hey, we wish ad nauseum was a sorcery. We want to be able to burning wish for it. Why is this thing an instant? They finally gave us a an ad nauseum that they felt like was on the power level that we could burning wish for. It's still a nine mana line, but like it's super powerful when you cast it. Um, It's just, you know, it's niche. Yeah, that's the perfect card. So, and then that brings us into resurgent old cards. And we, I mean, if you've listened to the podcast for the last year, we've talked about all of these at least a little bit because that's kind of the point of a 2020 in review. Uh, so uh, we don't need to hit all these too hard, but like Carpet of Flowers emerged from the ashes to combat all these blue decks. Uh, Hooting Mandrels turns out that uh, dodging Abrupt Decay, dodging Lightning Bolt, all that. Skyclave. That's what people want to be doing again. Yep, dodging Skyclave Apparition. Uh, Submerge is back. 
that one like i remember seeing it saw a ton of play in like 2012 2013 and then you know a little bit more than half a decade the card's back yeah well submerge is back because the delver mirror is back like what else was true in 2012 2013 it's that rug delver mirrors you could expect to play a lot of them in a tournament and that's true again and submerge is is phenomenal there which brings us to our next card gemstone mine what do you do if you're just an honest merit lage player trying to make merit lage but your deck is full of forests and everyone's got submerges in their deck you cut all your forests and play gemstone mine and city of brass five color rainbow depths like that's awesome yeah great that, innovation that's so cool yeah you love to see an that. amazing innovation and easiest 5-0 i ever had in a league like honestly that was like i don't know like it was like i was playing against kittens <laughs> we didn't know how to play magic very well and uh doomsday we talked about a bit already uh Thassa's oracle brought back doomsday you no longer have to be uh some sort of rocket surgeon to figure out how to make piles uh the the basic piles pretty clean uh gilded drake that that arrived with uh esper vile what i found funny about this is that like Somebody, I think it might have been Jeff Lynn, uh, top aided a challenge with Gilded Drake in the board. And then, like, the very next week, they shot up to like $180. And people were like, oh my God, Esper Vile, like, it's creating this price spike. It's like, that was solely due to Commander. And it just happened to coincide yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that, it's a hot Commander card. It's a reserve list rare. Sorry, everybody. Um, like, I think I own two of them that I've just had since, like, the ancient times where it was your tech against show and tell in like 2012 or whatever oh yeah and like uh i think esper vile plays three like i remember that in a list so i'm just never playing esper vile because i'm not spending 200 dollars on a gilded drake but but yeah like gilded drake is back also uh, a card that obviously didn't make the list but makes gilded drake better is the the new baron uh b-a-r-r-i-n uh the talarian uh, archmage that, yeah that sounds about right uh yeah baron I think he was in M21, right? Sounds right. Or, okay, I, I hope that's true. But he might be a 2019 card. I don't actually know the answer. But, like, uh, Baron, uh, it's a three-mana human wizard. Uh, it's a mana war. So it comes into play, bounces a creature. Or a planeswalker, right? Or a planeswalker? Okay, maybe. Uh, we should look at this <laughs> Yeah. It bounces something. And at the, at the end of the turn, if a permanent was returned to your hand from the battlefield you draw a card so you violent gilded drake steal their best thing bounce your gilded drake now you have their best thing your gilded drake and you draw a card all right i have a real-time update barian tolarian archmage 2-2 legendary uh human wizard for one blue blue when uh this card enters the battlefield return up to one uh, other target creature or planeswalker to its owner's hand at the beginning of your end step if a permanent was returned to your hand from the battlefield this turn draw a card all right, I was pretty close on that. Just missed the Planeswalker. But yeah, the, the combo with Gilded Drake is like seriously good. And then if you also have Caracas to bounce your Baron and you just get to steal all their creatures and draw cards forever, that is hot. <laughs> uh, so next up, we saw Stifle coming back. And this is an old legacy pattern, right? Uh, it, it, it's almost like a, a wise proverb at this point. Like, Stifle is best when Stifle is worst. And then you you have people coming around really trying to shove Stifle into decks where it has never been played before. 
uh, and we, we start seeing things like Pokey Pile, where we have sort of a mid-range or control deck taking on the Stifle role, um, in addition to just decks like Delver doing it. There's also yeah, the that... uh, five-color Depths deck running Stifle as well. Right. So uh, those are three completely different uses for Stifle. Like in Delver, it's to screw your mana. In Depths, it's to stop your Wasteland primarily. Uh, it's also incidental storm hate, I guess. Uh, and then in Pokepile, I think this is the most interesting innovation. Uh, you can attack their mana because you have Stifle and Wasteland and Days, but if you get into that mid-game where Stifle usually falls off, you can Stifle your Sacrifice My Uro trigger, like when you cast it on the front end, and you just get a 4-mana Uro up front without having to spend 7 mana and get 5 cards in your graveyard. So, like, that's... That's the coolest thing. Like, that's why this mid-range deck gets to get away with Stifle, because they have a real payoff. It's the 2020 Stifle Knot combo. Yeah, it's the real Stifle Knot. It's, <laughs> it's funny that Uro, like a 6-6 a six, six with Growth Spiral attached, is better than a 12-12. So uh, the next card is Standstill, primarily for the reasons that Brian discussed with Shark Typhoon. Shark Typhoon brought back the old 2007 Landstill archetype. And Sandstill is just like one of those classic card advantages in Legacy, and I was thrilled to see it come back. Yeah, it was a lot of fun re-exploring those play patterns, because like, a lot of the time, like in today's Legacy, you don't get to cast turn two Standstill. Like someone's got a Delver under you, someone's got a Dreadhorde Arcanist, someone's got a, a Mother of Ruins or Thali, like an Aether Vial, like whatever. But working to those like mid-game situations where you're like, end step, uh, disenchant your aether vial untap supreme verdict and stand still go like on turn seven or whatever and you're like now we got the hooks in like that that feels so good uh it's a different standstill than you might remember if you were playing in 2007 but you might not remember this or you might try to block it out from your brain but the companion era mishra's bobble that was a card that you either owned or you wish you owned and either way, you were probably broke. Uh, Malicious Bobble hit like 85 tickets at one point on Magic Online. And you were rich if you had them. And if you didn't, you you know, you wish that you did, like I just said. But like it pretty much like defined if you were having a good, uh, successful period at, during that time. Like you either owned them and did well or you didn't. Like some people tried to run Urza's Bobble, but it wasn't quite as good. Uh, like that was a card that defined a part of 2020, right? Oh, unquestionably. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then they reprinted it and also banned the card that used it best, and now it's just a normal card. I hope that something breaks it again, selfishly, because I bought something like 28 foil copies in real life, uh, and plus like a stack of non-foil ones. So I have a deep spec on Mishra's Bobble and hope it creeps back up. Because that was like $30, $40 in real life, too. More than once. Like, there was... Uh, multiple periods, like the original Death Shadow period and then like the Lurus period again, like that card was just hurting for a reprint and very expensive in real life too. I looked at it for Storm because it enables Mox Opal, but just like the slow trip aspect is just like slightly too, you know. Yeah, that that's not acceptable in a deck like Storm, for sure. I bought my baubles for a quarter and I buy listed them at $25 at one point. Nice. And that wasn't that wasn't this year. That was like a year or two ago. Like I think during Death Shadow. Yeah, I remember when Modern Masters 2017 was getting spoiled. Uh, so this has been like a thing for at least three years now. 
that's the one that had fetch lands in it, I believe. Uh, there was still un- uncommon slots open on the on the spoiler to make room that Mistress Bobble could still be in the set. And I challenged uh, EDB, Eric Brown, uh, Judge, and he was working at a magic store at the time where I was like, would you like to play a game? You know, like the like Saw style. I think I even sent like the Saw, like uh, Jake Saw GIF in the, the thing. It was like, I will pay like half the price that, like I think Mistress Bobble was like $30 at the time. It was like, I'll pay like 15 or 20 for Mistress Bobbles right now. If it's reprinted in the set, you win big. If it's not, I win big. Like, what do you think? And he was just like, yeah, sure, 80 for the set. So like, I got in and it ended up not being in the set. So I did well. But uh, it's been reprinted since. I don't know. But uh, I, I've had my set and that's how I got it. <laughs> uh, other cards that came back and I'll talk about them together are Replenish and Moat. Uh, Replenish, I talked about a little bit already. We got uh, a whole slew of new Monarch enchantments. We got Shark Typhoon. Uh, there's there's like a reason to play Replenish as like a one or two of late game banger in a blue-white control deck now. And with Mystic Sanctuary that can rebuy it, uh, you can just keep refiring it, eventually get through Counter Magic. And if that thing resolves, the game should pretty much end. And Moat goes right with it. Like if you're building a, a white-based deck with an enchantment theme, Moat uh, stops Dreadhorde Arcanist, Uro, Oko, Elves... Most of death and taxes, I well, taxes has a lot of answers now. They used to have four, now they have eight. But, uh, like, there's just a lot of stuff that Moat shuts down. Uh, like, Rug Delver, if you can answer the Delvers, they basically can't beat it. So, uh, Moat is back, uh, which is a shame, because I only own one, and I don't want to buy a second. And I think you need to play two if you're going to play any. So let's hope it's not as good, not actually good, <laughs> for, for our wallet's sake. All right. So wrapping things up, our final section of the day is sort of changes to the community itself that have happened over the last year. Um, and kind of unfortunately, this is a, a bit of the low note for the episode. Th- this year drove a lot of people out of Legacy, uh, or even out of Magic for different reasons. For some people, like, the absence of paper Magic was just kind of the point where they fell off, they stopped watching coverage, they stopped wanting to play... For other people, they were frustrated with uh, with play patterns or financially speaking, it was just time for them to sell their cards because, you know, they they got furloughed. They had real life stuff that was popping up. They were ready to buy a house. Um, I, I, I lost a lot of magic friends this year. Yeah, that's definitely true. The the, the squeeze of the, the pandemic, both being expensive for some people who aren't working and removing the primary motivation of owning magic cards, which is you know, to play with them and see your friends. Uh, just a lot of people saw like thousands of dollars just sitting on their shelf in a time where liquid cash is important. So that that's rough. Um, in like in better news, uh, the online events, uh, legacy PTQs are a thing. The uh, uh, Eternal Weekend, Gen Con, and PAX all did the the God accounts, and a lot of people got to play Legacy and Vintage for the first time just because uh, card availability was not an issue. Uh, I I have some concerns about who, who the, the demographic is that got to play it for free one time and can now afford to go build it in real life. Like I, I feel like that's not going to be uh, great for the format initially, but I guess if 
it could generate buzz of like, wow, Legacy is great. I wish I could play it normally. Hey, Wizards, please. Like something. Uh, I, we're not going to turn this into a reserve list conversation, but like uh, if Wizards can do something, like is it time for Snow Covered Underground Sea? Like, please. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be shocked if moving forward we see an online Eternal Weekend and a paper Eternal Weekend because it was super successful. Like we might have like, uh online eternal weekend you know like october 28th through 31st but paper eternal weekend for the the u.s might be october 14th or something like that like yeah i i hope that they uh use the god account model for more things in general like uh have like an annual like modern championship or whatever like not just even legacy like for everything like as a way to showcase their formats like magic's a great game there's a lot of great formats but you know like the the 17 year old kid who's like uh, maybe has like a part-time job for minimum wage is not going to buy not even going to buy scalding tarn forget about volcanic island like so uh hopefully they find ways to showcase that uh i just hope they don't replace the the paper events with that like i could see them like oh eternal weekend is like you know medium popular it's a niche thing we could just hold it online and make more money and like skip out on uh nick costs and the the tos and the judges and everything oh magic would never make any decisions (laughs) sorry sorry i couldn't do it i couldn't do it phil can't finish the thought so going back to the uh thursday ptqs i loved that during the 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 one like bright spot of the companion era to me was the thursday ptqs i loved them and then once they announced that they were arena ptqs because like at that point the pro tour was still like shrouded in mystery. There was no plan for what was going to happen yet. They announced that it was just going to be an arena pro tour. The PTQs for almost every format other than modern quit firing. And I wish that didn't happen because I think that's why we quit getting them. Uh, if they had continued, it would have been great because now we get like a, a, is it quarterly or is it per period? Uh, like in thirds, but we get like a PTQ like once every three or four months now. And it sucks. I wish that there was more. And I think like we as the legacy community kind of blew that a little bit, but so did other formats as well. I just wish that we still had them. Yeah. Coming up at the end of January, January 30th, uh, or no, January 24th, there is a vintage BTQ on Moto. So there is one coming up pretty soon. Uh, doesn't help the legacy players, but there, there's a glimpse of eternal magic being relevant to a pro career, which is kind of, what we all hope for like uh, most legacy players are not grinding ptqs but if we can just like spike and go to the pro tour playing what we like like i mean that's where all of my pt invites have come from just modern tournaments so uh, it's pretty cool that that's available yeah so a lot uh, of go ahead after you philip all right a lot of online retailers and such or individuals even have started picking up some of the the slack and have started trying to wiggle their way into the tournament series market. So we see independent events like the Mana Traders series and the Lotus Box events um, starting to to pop up, and other people are trying to say, hey, can we organize something through, say, MTG Melee that is going to be fun, that people are going to enjoy, that still ends up being profitable for us? And it, it seems like a lot of people are enjoying grinding those events. We also saw in 2020 the rise of prelims and the death of prelims and hopefully the rise of prelims again. Uh, To start the year, prelims were 
very popular. We were hitting like 20 to 30 people on a Thursday night. There's another legacy one. I think it might have been like Monday at like two in the afternoon that I could never play and do to work. But the Thursday ones, like they were, you know, filling up. And after a while, like people just quit playing in them for whatever reason, like getting 16 people was very difficult. Uh, and they sort of just like soaked up. It got to the point where like people even quit trying to register. And then they announced a new change and it seems like people like them more. You get way more QPs, but the prizes are worse. You only need 12 people. Maybe this makes them come back. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful. And we're we're also starting to see some experimentation. Um, the the octo- octagon events are uh, are now starting to to pop up where you uh, you you go head to head against seven other players and see who comes out on top. Yep, like the classic GP side event win a box. Like uh, eight players play for a hundred dollars. Like uh, it's cool that they add like coverage and some hype around it. Uh, tried and true model. So I'm I'm hoping that all of this is like sort of like a, a dam, like a temporary stopgap to like the flow of legacy. Uh, like I, I'm kind of hoping that like in the summer or whatever, whenever it is, maybe the fall, who the fuck knows, like when everyone's vaccinated and we can gather in large groups again, that like people are just going to be so hungry to play legacy that like GP attendance just shatters records or, or something, you know, like that's kind of what I'm hoping for. I mean, right now the idea of shattering a GP record and being in the building with that many people is stressing me out, but I hope I'll be over it by then and back to being around people. But like, I, I just like all of those people who sold out their cards went somewhere, right? Like, uh, unless like a collector is just keeping all the dual lands or like, uh, it, it, cause like if stores have them and they don't sell, the price will lower. So they sell like that, like stores don't want to own dual lands. Stores want to sell dual lands. So, I mean, those cards went somewhere. So uh, I'm hoping that there's a bunch of people who just fell in love with Legacy over the pandemic, ready to play their paper cards. So I am looking forward to the day where I can tell someone, please don't touch my cardboard. Yeah, like, don't touch my deck, ever. Get your germy paws off my foils. Yeah, like, I, I've made this joke before, but it's only like 20% a joke and 80% completely serious that like, using like a uh, newfound respect for germs uh, that we've all gained through COVID to m- let people not touch my stuff. sounds great. Like that, like what, like once per tournament, you get just like the, the like sweaty rando who sits down and like reaches across the table into your dice and just like, you want a high roll with your own dice. I'm just like, fuck you like, <laughs> from the depth of my soul. Like, who do you think you are? If you just asked, I would have gotten my dice, but you reached like into my space, into my things to take them. I'm going to call a judge immediately. <laughs> uh, so that that's like a, a bitter, angry way to end the podcast. Somebody say something. Happy all right. So we can I got off. it. All right. Um, we've all been working really hard to improve our content. I hope you all are enjoying it, whether it's the podcast itself or some of our YouTube or Twitch based content. Happy New Year's to everyone, and here's to hoping 2021 is a bright, happy, and cheerful year. I think it's really Merrill Age's fault. We were all rooting for a great 2020 pun year, and we got punished.